Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. Given last week's episode with Eric Jorgensen, I thought it would pair really well adding Sieva's episodes. So Sieva Kaczynski is the co-founder of Enduring Ventures with his partner Xavier, and they founded in 2019 with 17 acquisitions. And one of them is Scribe Media, which Eric Jorgensen, last week's guest, is now the CEO of. And one thing that was really fun is I got to meet Eric and Sieva both at last year's Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting and we had a, a fun dinner with them and got to spend a lot of time with them and really admire both of them. And so bringing the two conversations back to back is a lot of fun. And we're hopefully going to see them all this year at this year's meeting too. So this episode with Sieva, we talk about his background as a founder and impact of that experience on the strategy for Enduring Ventures, which is a diversified holding company structure. He also talks about being a better buyer than a builder and really likes studying great companies and founders and trying to take lessons from them. So this was a really fun episode just on its on its own, but the pairing with Eric's episode last week, I think makes this really timely. So anyhow, enjoy the episode with Sieva Kaczynski. When it comes to accounting, quality of earnings reports, and financial due diligence, it's vital to have a partner who understands your business and what you're trying to accomplish. Jerry Joe and his team at Hood & Strong in San Francisco have a specialty for search funds and lower middle market private equity, with multiple podcast guests today trusting them with their partnership. Email Jerry at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com to learn more. For advice and observations on accounting for small companies, Here's Jerry himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. What goes into the tax diligence portion of a quality of earnings report? So the tax diligence that we were thinking about is most of the small business that we we take on in the acquisition is they are usually S-corps, partnerships, uh, pass-through entities. So from that standpoint, generally speaking, the income tax piece is removed that just doesn't get transferred to the buyer if it's structured properly. But other tax that potentially can carry over to the buyer with exposure are what we call the trust fund tax. And this includes payroll tax, sales tax. And what we do on the quality of earnings is that we take on some limited procedures around what's relevant from that standpoint, namely what's what's the exposure that the buyer can expect. And around you know, payroll tax, sales tax, the sales tax is, is one that has become a lot more tricky these days, uh, especially with the South Dakota versus Wafer that got introduced back in 2018. We're seeing a lot more states that are going after business based on where they're selling to. So the, the, the business has the responsibility to collect, remit, and file sales tax returns in a state that their customer resides, as opposed to where the business is uh, where the employees are. And this affects a lot of the software transactions that we see. And part of the scope is that we want to be able to at least have a high level analysis and evaluation of whether there's any significant exposure that we think in those specific area. And if there is, 
then we can uh, narrow down and be more focused to quantify what that exposure that the buyer needs to be aware of. Great. Thanks, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Ravix Group and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Yeah, your notes are pretty thorough. Are those like, is this like a note doc you've put together over the years of just like interesting ideas you've collected or beliefs of yours? Yeah, I have I have like two running docs. One are just beliefs that I have. And as I compile them, I, I add them here so I can look back on them and cement them into my brain. And then we have a separate doc that is everything that we've learned at Enduring specifically, which is... 15 pages and constantly growing of mistakes we've made, things we've done correctly, so we can look back on them and make sure that we don't we don't make those mistakes again. That's awesome. That's a good idea. I have this, I think I told you about the chief of staff role I have now at this media business, and we just bought a data business in December. A few friends have recommended doing something similar. I have a just like a daily notebook that I use. It's actually a NetJets notebook I bought at the last Berkshire meeting that I use every day, but I haven't had any sort of like long-term lessons and beliefs document before. Did you start doing this recently or is this something you've been doing for quite a while? I started it maybe a year and a half ago and I'll forget to add to it for like three months at a time and then I'll go there and I'll add a few more bullet points, look back, make some changes on the stuff that I believed six months ago. Uh, and go from there. What's been the newest addition to the doc? There's some things that I learn and I kind of double down on over time. You know how I mentioned I'll go back and I'll delete some things. There's also some things that I'll just expand on and like I will have had a belief, but my belief is cemented and I kind of go deeper and it grows. I kind of pull on the string. One of them is is this concept of structure is the most important thing for your company and it really drives your strategy which then drives how successful you can be i think so we picked a c corp for example like when when we started enduring ventures we started it as a c corporation which is pretty unique there aren't many private holding companies that start as a c corporation usually people do a fund maybe an evergreen fund structure or simple LLC structure. But we opted to to say, hey, this is something we're going to do for the long term. We want to be doing this for 20 plus years. What's the best structure for that? And at the time, we decided that it was a C-Corp because what a C-Corp does is it allows you to reinvest the profits that your companies make over and over again without taking taxation at the individual level. So you're getting corporate level taxation, which is usually half of what it is for the individual. So over time, that that really adds up, right? As if you can continue investing and reinvesting and reinvesting that capital. Now, most companies are a fund or an LLC, and a fund and LLC is a great way to get wealthy fast. It's a great way to distribute a lot of cash flow from your profitable companies, buy yourself that nice house, maybe a nice car, send your kids to private school. 
But as you're doing that, you are taking money out of your company and you're using it for your personal life and you're getting used to a a better existence, kind of a more expensive lifestyle. So your current lifestyle is always going to be a drag on your ability to compound wealth over the long term, over 10 and 20 years. The C-Corp, the C-Corp is like the ultimate marshmallow test. So it's a delayed gratification structure. It's It disincentivizes you to distribute cash flow to individuals or to, to pay yourself a large salary because you get taxed at the corporate level, you get taxed at the individual level. So you're really incentivized to keep your cash inside the company and use it to, to reinvest over and over again. And that allows you to, you know, hopefully 10, 20 years from now, have something that's a really big company that's worth a lot of money, as opposed to maybe an expensive lifestyle that you lived along the way. Yeah, I like seeing the, I like your thought around long-termism being an advantage. Do you think long-termism is becoming more or less common amongst competitors for great businesses? So other investors or holding companies. I was just looking at Blackstone having put together more of a permanent capital fund or having more and more focus on on stuff like that. Do you, do you feel like more and more folks are thinking long-term or do you think it's actually going away? I think Brent B. Shore is inspiring all of these like massive old school private equity companies to take the same exact model that he did. I saw, I think I saw the Blackstone one and the KKR one. They're all like 30-year funds and Brent's for the last 10 years has been a 30-year fund. So I think he carved that path and a lot of people are following him now. Or I, at least I, I'd like to hope to think that those giants are are, are taking inspiration from him. So yeah, certainly. I, I have seen more long-term funds. I don't really have a good gauge on whether it's more or less than there were in the past. I think some people have seen the benefits of having a long-term company, a long-term vehicle, but the whole world is still focused on the short term, right? Like 95% of the world is classic funds, classic private equity funds. Institutions are still way more comfortable investing in a classic private equity fund than they are a long-term vehicle. And that's just because they want to feel like there's some kind of time horizon for their money. It's because it's a model that they've been used to for the last 30 years and they're not ready to kind of pivot and shift and say, okay, we're in this for the long term. I mean, if you look at, obviously, the, the best indicator of this is the stock market, right? The, the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, they both have, most companies are doing quarterly filings and quarterly forecasts. And that is the, the greatest form of short-termism, right? Because no business operates on a three-month cycle. You can't, like, you can't, look into the eyes of any CEO and have them honestly tell you that they know what's going to happen over the next three months. So I, I hope the world is going to, to more of a long-term mindset. I think everything would be better. That's actually a pedestal that I, a, 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 I stand on, a hill that I'm willing to die on. If people thought in decades as opposed to quarters or years, the whole world would be a better place because the and if the incentives were structured around the long term as opposed to the short term, people would behave better because incentives drive everything. And, and I think we can we can hopefully all agree on that. Yeah, certainly. And the kind of poster child for a lot of this 
long-termism is where we got to meet at the Berkshire event. Any notable takeaways from the event or what Warren and Charlie talked about or folks you met there? Any Anything to stand out to you? Yeah, that, that event was amazing. That was my first time at the Berkshire event. I wish I had gone in previous years. This year, I made a last-minute decision on a Tuesday to go on Friday. I'd been traveling quite a bit for work, but I told myself, hey, this might, you know, I, I, of course, those two are idols of mine. I've read everything that it, they've ever written, and they're they're kind of getting up there in age. So I, I had to go see them. It was it was really cool. It was like it was like the energy of Coachella, but for a bunch of business nerds in suits. It was so fun to you know we woke up at six thirty, got in line, waited to get in. There were thousands of people already in line, drinking coffee, chatting it up. People were feeling good. The energy was high. And then when they opened the doors, once you go through security, this was funny. Once you go through security and you turn the corner, you see people like jogging to their seats or like running to their seats. And it's it's really just like, you know, a Taylor Swift concert, like people trying to get to the front of the stage as quickly as they can so they can see their hero. I, th- I thought it was so cool. Biggest takeaway, take care of your body and your mind. Those two, Warren is now 92 and Charlie is 99. They, they, Charlie's in a wheelchair, but he's just sharp as a tack still. So I, I think anyone that I've talked to after that, after that event and asked them the same question, they've all come away with the same answer. I cannot believe how sharp and on it those two 90-year-olds are. And that was really, really cool. Other than that, I think I just appreciate how they have said the same thing over and over again for 40 years and they've never deviated. And I don't know if they send each other speaking notes for the first 10 of these to say, hey, this is what we're talking about and then eventually get cemented or if it's, or if there's just like 15 things that they care about that's on their mind and in any situation, their response is the same. So, you know, obviously we had the big banking crisis in the last few months. SVB, a top 20 bank, went belly up. First Republic, an institution here in California, went belly up. And they got asked the question, about what they think was what they thought about the banking sector and their response was a, a, just a different their response was really just a different frame of the same thing that they always say which is incentives drive behavior the the CEOs are driven to make their banks grow to grow their balance sheets to grow their profits in the short term so they're going to make short term decisions with long term capital which is risky so that's the first issue. The second issue within incentives is there's no liability or clawbacks for those executives, right? You can walk away a billionaire of a C, you can walk away a billionaire as a CEO of a bank, retire, and the next year your bank can go belly up because of all the bad decisions you made over 10 years, but you don't ex- you as an individual don't experience that at all and if if there was some alignment of downside incentives you would have better behavior when you're running the bank, of course. And the last thing is is just interest rate and money printing. They talk about this a lot. A lot. They talk about the Fed. They talk about the Treasury. 
And we had 10 years of super low artificial interest rates in a hot economy with quantitative easing. And the act of increasing the money supply by so much in a given year leads to poor behavior, right? Every, every human, at, even at the end of a bull market, is acting irrationally, is buying speculative crypto, is buying NFTs, is et cetera, et cetera, any form of risk on assets. And they just reference that. They're like, look, like when interest rates are low, this is what happens. And, and when interest rates are high, people behave well. And this is just a downstream effect of that single action by the Fed. You asked me earlier what my most recent learning was. And there's a lot of learnings that I get studying Warren Buffett, Charlie, other holding companies, et cetera, because I'm a huge biography nerd. And I've heard this lesson over and over again, but unless you learn, or unless I learn a lesson firsthand, it's never cemented in the same way. I guess like if I learn, if I read about a lesson in a book, it's never really cemented for me in the same way than if I learn it firsthand. I think I heard this quote yesterday, I'm going to butcher it, but it was something like lessons forged in blood are lessons you remember forever. So like lessons you learn on the battlefield are the lessons that you truly ingrain in yourself as opposed to maybe lessons that you learn in like a military strategy book. So one lesson that 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 Charlie Munger has talked about forever is incentives, incentives, incentives. It's, I think it's, if you were to just say, pick one learning from Charlie Munger, what do you think? Is that the one? Does he have any others that no, I, th I think you could sum up a lot of his thoughts and things he's taught and talked about before as optimizing incentives or focusing on incentives to let and let those drive behavior and outcomes. I think you're yeah, I think you're totally right. And that's that's really the main learning that I've had from him and it it's changed how I think about I mean, I've I've started a few different businesses. I sold a business. We've bought companies now. We've bought 17 businesses to date. And it, it, it was only in the last year that I started truly thinking of the incentives of our executives, which is a little bit embarrassing to say, but basically like the last 15 years of my business building career, I've been just kind of on automatic. Yeah, like when we hire someone, we give them a salary, we give them some kind of bonus based on performance that I decide, and then we give them some stock and that vests over time. And I've just been, I, I come from the tech world, so that's just kind of what I learned, you know, growing up in San Francisco and building tech companies. But I never really thought about what type of behavior that drives, what are those incentives aligned with? And of course, in tech, when you're building a tech company, if you give someone equity that vests over five years in a business that's not worth anything at the time, right? If, if, if you're just getting started, what you're really saying is between now and five years from now, you're going to need to create incredible value and you're going to need to do it really quickly. And a normal business, you couldn't do that, right? A normal business will grow incrementally. You'll create solid value but not such where the equity will be life-changing. But in a tech company, 
you need that equity to be life-changing. And I think it's both good because we see kind of world-changing businesses, maybe like Airbnb or, or SpaceX or something like that get born and people really go after it and they want to create a ton of value in a short period of time. But you also see bad behavior, right? You see all of these different SPACs that happen where people want to just grow at all costs and exit publicly so that they can have a huge windfall themselves. Now, how that applies to our business today. Until recently, I was in the mindset of we should give our executives cash, bonus, and stock. Cash, bonus, and stock. And that's always been my mindset because I do want people to behave like owners, right? I do want our key leaders, they're super senior people, they're very sophisticated, they know their industries really well. And your podcast is called Think Like an Owner, and that's one of our values at Enduring Ventures. We want people to think and behave like an owner because ultimately they are. But what I've learned and you know, if I, if I had studied Warren's history a little bit better, I would have learned the same thing. But what I learned is basically you can't give upside equity if there's no downside alignment. You can't have people p- benefit in the upside glory if there isn't downside alignment. And what that means usually is skin in the game. Unless an executive has committed personal capital that is meaningful to them and their lives, they will never behave exactly like an owner. Because if you think about it, what an owner is, let's say you're starting a plumbing company, right? You start a plumbing company, you got to buy three trucks. When you go to buy the three trucks, the bank is going to ask you for a personal guarantee When you go to lease your office space, your industrial space, the landlord is going to ask you for a personal guarantee. You're going to basically sign on a lease for five years and say, yeah, I'm good for this. This business will be around for five years. But you have no idea, right? You're buying your first three trucks. Maybe you're starting your first business. You have zero customers. And now you're on the hook for this lease that's tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, and, and it's the same thing for people that are buying like an SBA-backed business, right? You, to, buy, to buy a business with SBA, you need to have a personal guarantee. So that is an owner, right? That is somebody who is sacrificing their time, their energy, and is betting on themselves saying that this business is going to be successful. Because in year two, when things inevitably get really freaking hard and customers aren't calling you and maybe it's winter time so or or maybe it's winter time and everyone's pipes are bursting and you don't have enough kind of people to supply them or your guys are calling in sick or quitting on you and you're out there at 2 in the morning fixing your customers pipes because it's the, the only thing you can do to pay your rent that is owner behavior right because if they didn't have that personal guarantee on the trucks and they didn't have that personal guarantee on the space. Look, maybe they would push through just because they have a great attitude and they really care. Or maybe they would think, you know what? Fuck this. It's Christmas Eve. I have a family. I'm done with this self-employment thing. I'm going to go get a job 
because I, I have a plumber's license, a master plumber's license, and somebody else is going to pay me to work from nine to five, Monday through Friday. And I don't need to work evenings. I don't need to work evenings. And you know what? I'm tired of dealing with these customers. And they could totally do that if they had no trucks, no space, they could just walk away. So all that to say, you know, when you're hiring executives, when we're hiring executives, we want to create a ton of upside if they grow the business. But we also want to find a way to align downside, right? And think through how do we make it so that when things get really tough and you need to fight through, you're going to stick with it and push through. Because if you have smart people that are committed to sticking, sticking it out and pushing through and growing the business, it always works out, right? You can figure it out. This isn't rocket science, right? It's business. There's pretty basic things you can do. You just have to tough it out when things get hard. So now our new position, our latest position that Xavier and I have shaken hands on, it's so, it's so serious, we've written it in blood, is that our executives will only get upside equity if they have skin in the game. So skin in the game, they mean you mean they need to personally invest to purchase a certain amount of equity and other equity vests, or how does that mechanically work? Yeah, it really depends on the business and the business stage. The earlier the business is in its life, the more equity you get considered sweat equity, but we still want people to make a capital commitment that's important to them, buy shares. If a business is a bit later stage, we expect a higher capital commitment relative to what you're going to earn on the back end because the business is already up and running. It's profitable. It's successful. It has a brand. So you're really going to make most of your equity if you can grow it from point B to point C, which means increasing profits meaningfully. You mentioned in your notes as well that coming from the venture world, you don't see yourself as a, as a builder. You've spent a lot of time trying to be a builder and decided that being a buyer was actually a better fit. I'd love to dive into that a little bit more and hear how that affects how you run enduring, but perhaps what your experience, you know, at Study Soup like influenced for you that that belief, that thinking. Yeah, yeah, it's a good it's a good question because I spent the first twelve years of my life being an entrepreneur and building businesses from scratch. You know, if you dial it back to when I was younger, I always thought I wanted to be a doctor or a veterinarian or something like that. I'm a son of immigrant Russian Jews, and that's what they told me I was going to be. So that's what I thought I wanted to be. And in college, I took pre-med classes and I was on that path. And then I took one entrepreneurship class and it was like I got bit by a bug and it took over my whole life. I turned into this like startup zombie. <laughs> I was just so excited about building companies. I thought it was the coolest idea. You know, you could start something from scratch. You could hire the people you want to work with and you could grow it. You could kind of grow this thing that started with an idea. And it is a really, really cool concept. And I was just in that cycle for about a decade. I started an education business. I started a 
healthcare business, which was doing clinical trials for pharmaceutical companies, phase two and phase three trials. And that was actually the, the first business, the first couple of businesses I did were tech or tech kind of adjacent. My clinical trial business was my first foray in true cash flow companies. It's a, it's a service business first. So you're running a trial, you're recruiting a patient, you're taking them through the trial, and then the company is paying you a lot of money to do that. So from day one, your business is, you know, maybe day 60, let's say, however long it takes them to pay you, but your business is very profitable. And that was my first taste of true profits, right? Because before I had raised a little bit of venture capital and it was kind of grow at all costs and hopefully sometime in the future we would have profits. But here it was profitable from day one and it kind of parted the clouds for me. You know, all of a sudden I was like, wow, I really like this business. It's maybe a little bit slower growth and I don't have a few million dollars that I can spend to just grow, grow, grow. But every month I'm making, you know, 5K and then 10K and then 20K directly into my bank account that I can use, that I don't need to reinvest. And it feels great. And, and I really, really like that. But what I've also learned about myself is that I don't like the product market fit stage of building a business. So I was in San Francisco, I was living in San Francisco all these years and everybody there is startups, 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 startups. And that's all I knew. So I thought to be a business owner, you have to start a startup, right? So I went through a few different cycles of starting businesses and you know, some were kind of successful, some were not successful at all. But many years later, I learned that, I, and I knew this about myself, I just didn't know you could skip this part. I hate the product market fit stage of starting a business, which means, which, which means that when you start a business, you're looking, sometimes in some industries like tech, you're looking for a product to fit to the needs of your customers. So, and, and to do that, you're meeting with customers, you're getting their feedback, you're building the product, and then you're testing and iterating, testing and iterating until you find something that works. That's in the world of product building or tech. And the reason you have to do that is because you're trying to innovate, right? You're trying to create something new that doesn't exist yet. So you're creating a product for a market that doesn't know what they want. And that can take months. It can take many years. and for my personality, that was the dark days, right? I didn't like that. I would just kind of grind my teeth and push through it until the business started working and then it started generating profits. And I love that. I love when there was already a fit and I could just focus all of my attention on hiring super smart people to grow the business and uh, kind of turning the dials and figuring out what's the best way to grow it. So learnings that I had at you know, I don't know if I could have avoid, avoided those 10 years of being a builder, of being a, a starter of companies, because I learned kind of the two most important things, which is one, I love cash flow businesses as opposed to tech where profits are coming in the future. And two, I hate the product market fit stage. And if I can avoid it, I would like to avoid it. But I didn't know I could avoid it until I went to business school. So I, you know, I spent all those years starting companies. I never planned on going to business school. 
my peers, my startup peers were like, my startup founder peers were like, why are you going to school? Like, it doesn't make any sense. You've learned way more than business school can ever teach you. And, and they were mostly true about that. But when I got to business school, there were a lot of pros. And one of them was that I was surrounded by private equity and investment bankers for the first time. And all they do is buy and sell businesses all day. And I'm this entrepreneur and I thought I was hot shit because I'd started a couple of companies, but now I'm surrounded by people that have made way more money and been way more successful buying something that works and then selling it. And that opened up my eyes to this world of business buying. And I realized that, okay, I can get into my two, I can solve my the two things that are important to me. One, I can have cash flow quickly by buying a business. And two, I can skip the product discovery phase and I can go directly to something that has product market fit where I can just focus on hiring and working with great people and solving the issues that one of a business that's already working has. Have you done any of those characteristic or personality, not personality assessments, but like kind of the predictive index or culture index? Have you done any of those on yourself to figure out some of the the roots for why certain situations or certain companies fit you versus others? We did the culture index recently as a group. I don't remember all of my criteria, but one area that came back and kind of informed some of the conversation that we're having right now. So yeah, so so one area that came back and informed the conversation that we're having right now was, I don't remember what they called it, but it, it was basically like the ability to dream and innovate. And I think to be a great founder and CEO, you need to be fairly high. And, and I'm talking about in tech specifically. I think you need to be fairly high on that metric. So Xavier, for example, is quite high on that metric. And for me, that metric is quite low. and. So the, what the culture index indicated through that that indicator and, and another one was that I'm someone who's more of a linear thinker and more of an operator. And buying a business that works, that is functioning, that is generating good cash flow, that has been around for a long time is a perfect fit for my personality. And I think I think the other, I'm, I'm, I might butcher this just because I'm working from memory, but The other thing I think we learned is that for the culture index, when it's basically like five or six horizontal lines and there are markers to the left or to the right, basically along a spectrum for each of those lines. And if those, if those lines are grouped tightly together, you are in a role and doing a job that you're suited for well. And if they're spread out, it means you are stretching beyond your capabilities. And and you may be able to do it. That may be perfectly fine. But you are stretching beyond the place where you like to operate, where you will operate most efficiently and effectively. And for me, those lines were grouped fairly tightly together. And that was, I I think that was nice to see for me because I do feel like I was born to do what we're doing today. I love long-term holding company that we work on. And I love the businesses that we work on. So it was interesting to see that come through in a, in an index as well. How different do you think your 
effectiveness with Enduring Ventures would be had you not had prior experience as a founder? I'll tell you my belief. So I think it's incredibly important to have been an operator at the scale and business types that we work with. 70% of the time, my job is to look at interesting businesses, research interesting industries, learn from other great people, and find great businesses to buy. That's 70% of my job. But 30% of my job, which is incredibly important and perhaps makes up half the value, is working closely with our businesses, rolling up our sleeves and operating. And I just can't imagine running a small business or even being a meaningful investor in a small business and not having operating experience because small businesses are chaos, right? They're just slightly contained chaos. Actually, any size business is chaos. It's just when you have a big business, you have a lot of people to manage that chaos. When you have a small business, you have a limited number of people to manage the chaos. So our ability to operate has really helped us. Like we have definitely stepped in as CEOs or COOs or CFOs of our businesses, usually not by title, but 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 by function, certainly, and have been, I think, very supportive and important to the the success of our company. So so I really just can't imagine coming from a world where you've never operated a business because there's the million different things Xavier and I have learned in the last 10 to 20 years, which I think make us better investors today. And the first and most important one is identifying and recruiting great talent. And the only way to do that is if you've had many turns at the wheel. There's, there's really no other way to shortcut that process. Basically, to be an incredible identifier of talent and recruiter, you should have recruited dozens of people to work for you and then seen how they perform over time. Because your intuition or my intuition 15 years ago was far weaker than my intuition is today. And that intuition was built on cycles and cycles and cycles of seeing people work with us. So that I, I think that's that's the most important thing is the ability to quickly identify and recruit the best people for the job and place the right people in the in the role that they should be in. But look, there's plenty of coaches in the MBA that never played professionally. And I think there's plenty of investors out there that weren't operators by background. But for me, I found it incredibly helpful. What do you feel like the founding experiences that you had taught you about identifying great companies? Like what things do you pay attention to because of having run companies before that maybe are tied directly to that experience? Along the way, as you're building companies, as you're investing, it's less about what is the right type of company to buy. And it's more a million different reasons you learn why a company is not a great company. And that's really what I learned along the way is my first business was an education business. And it basically provided note-taking and tutoring solutions for college students. So college students were paying us 
to help with studying. And it was an okay business, but college students are a horrible customer base for study solutions. Maybe if you're hosting like a Coachella or some kind of concert, they're a perfectly fine customer. They're willing to spend hundreds of dollars. But when your goal is to help them get a slightly better grade or understand a topic a little bit better, they are not excited to dig into their pocket and pay you a couple hundred dollars a year. And when you're running a business that's only extracting a couple hundred dollars a year for value and you have to fight tooth and nail to get that couple hundred dollars, that's a bad business. You have no pricing power. There's really no upside value in it. Now, of course, there are great businesses that have been built serving college students, but that is a learning that I've had, right? So like now, if we're looking at a business that serves a specific type of audience, I want to know, like, do they have a disposable income? Like, can they spend money on the service that they were that we're providing one two is their perception of this product as a nice to have or a need or a need to have because if it's a nice to have when you raise your prices they may stop buying your product but if it's a need to have like a plumbing company and you you're a homeowner and your pipes are leaking in your bathroom when we show up with with our plumbing service you're definitely going to pay for it. It's not a nice to have. You need to protect your investment. Running water in your home is a huge problem. So you're going to pay for, you're basically going to pay whatever, whatever cost that plumber is going to charge you to fix it. So yeah, there's been a, there's been a million little learnings along the way of what to do, what not to do, what type of people to work with, what types of people to hire. And it all kind of nets out to what we do today, right? Today, we look for businesses that have been around for a long time, because for us, that's an indicator that they're likely to be around for a longer time. It's called the Lindy effect. We don't want a business that's just been around for four or five years because we don't know. It hasn't really stood the test of time. We don't know if it'll be around for four or five years. And we, when we look at a business, we want to buy it and hold it hopefully forever. We look for businesses that generate good cash flow, and we specifically look for businesses that have good cash conversion cycles. So my the clinical trial business that I mentioned to you, we would do work and then submit to the pharma- pharmaceutical companies, and they could take 60 days, they could take 90 days to pay us. So that is a considered a poor cash conversion cycle. Basically, I had to pay the salaries of all of my employees and all of the costs for these studies for 60 or 90 days before I was making any money. Whereas some businesses that we have, you pay either before the work is done or the, the day the work is performed. So for example, like our pool construction business, one of the reasons we love it is because you have to pay before every stage of the construction. So the construction of your pool is broken into five stages. Before we dig a hole, you're going to put down a deposit. After we dig a hole, you're going to pay for the next stage. So we're always in a positive cash conversion cycle. So we're basically holding your cash and using it to pay our employees and our and and our sub subcontractors. Yeah, I think I think those are probably a couple of good ones. Maybe one last one is we care about we want to have businesses that generate more cash flow 
then they consume as they grow. So a business can spit off cash and still grow. And that learning really comes from VC-backed businesses. So my first business, we tried to grow in excess of the cash flow that we created. So that's why we raised money. We wanted to grow, grow, grow. And I didn't enjoy that. I didn't think that was fun. So eventually we actually shifted our business model. We shifted from a VC-backed business to a profitable business to focusing on profit and growing out of profit. So now when we buy businesses, we, you know, we're less interested. We're more interested in buying a business that can double in size and still create free cash flow for us, as opposed to a business where we're going to have to outlay millions of dollars in order for it to double in size and then recuperate our investment on that, on that over the coming years on that growth. And speaking of the the investing of that cash flow into other businesses, one one thing you've mentioned too is that within a lot of these holding companies that you've studied, there's a, a Pareto principle at effect where most of the returns or growth or performance by a holding company is driven by kind of a handful of of businesses within those. And I think that's probably true broadly of lots of things. Like even within a company, there's probably only a few products that are driving most of growth. So it's not specific necessarily to holding companies, but do you think that that concept is at odds at all with a holding company structure where you're trying to buy multiple businesses with perhaps an alternative being trying to find the best possible business and focusing entirely on that business? Do you think that's in, a, in conflict or, or not so much? It really depends on the person. I, I have people in my network, friends of mine, that they only want to focus on one business, right? They want to pick one product and they just want to focus on that exclusively and they just want to go after it until it succeeds. I love the holding company model because you don't need any given company to be an outstanding success, right? If you just buy a great business at a good price and we buy businesses at three to five times yearly cash flow. So if you pay four times cash flow for a business and you don't break anything, it doesn't need to double, right? Every single year, that business is going to produce 25% cash on cash returns for you, which is more than double what the S&P 500 will do for you. So it's it's a bit of an obvious investment, right? Even if you're not creating some kind of outstanding success. But when we are buying businesses that we don't think will grow and double and triple, the focus is really to create cash flow streams. Actually, the focus with all of our purchases is to create cash flow streams. So every business we buy is like a new stream of cash flow into our river of cash flow that goes into our lake of cash, right? So every time we buy a new business that generates good cash flow, it opens up a new spring. And then we buy another business and it opens up a new spring and it increases the velocity with which our river starts flowing and our cash flow starts growing. And then of course we can use that pool of cash flow to go and buy new businesses. And if you do that enough, sometimes you sometimes you as a buyer have a unique insight and you know this business is going to be huge and it's just undervalued today. But 
my guess is that hindsight is 2020 and 90% of the great investments that you see today, 90% of those investments that make up the majority of a holding company that are just outstanding successes, I think those are all smart accidents. So if you make a lot of smart investments, every once in a while, an accident is going to happen and you are just going to have an outsized return on one of those investments. And and you see it everywhere, right? Like Berkshire, the world's greatest holding company, I think something like 25% of their market cap today is Apple Computer. And Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger did not make that investment originally. They had no, you know, like if you wind the clock back 10 years, I I think they made the investment maybe eight years ago or so, or maybe 10 years now. If you wind the clock back and you ask them the six months after they bought Apple, in your portfolio today, what is the greatest company and what will make up the largest sum of your holding company 10 years from now? And these guys are, have been investing for 50 years. These are the best of the best, the smartest in the world, genuinely. I don't think either of them would have mentioned Apple. I don't think either of them would have mentioned Apple in the top five even. Now, of course, I'm guessing, right? This is all speculation. This could be totally wrong. But any company that you look at, I think any great company you look at, falls into that. Let's take a look at another holding company. So I studied Lowe's Corporation recently. Lowe's Corporation was started by Larry Tish and his brother, and they first started as a hospitality business. So they bought a hotel, then they bought another hotel. Today, they own a portfolio of really nice, beautiful hotels. Then they bought a chain of theaters. So what happened was there was a big Supreme Court ruling called Paramount versus the versus the the United States. Paramount is the of course movie production production studio. And what what used to happen is movie production studios used to have their own movie theaters, right? So they could have vertical integration. They could make the movies and they could show the movies and if you wanted to see their movies, you had to pay whatever price that they were offering in their theaters. And they didn't have to they didn't have to show their movies in anybody else's theaters. And somebody a group of folks contested that at some point, and the Supreme Court voted that this is a kind of anti-competitive behavior. So they forced those they forced those production companies to sell their theaters. And as part of that, Larry Tish bought Lowe's theaters, which we which we all know today. They, they it's a brand that people are familiar with. Eventually, just a year later, they take that business public. It's a very successful outcome. Instead of reinvesting in those theaters, they realize that they're just sitting on really expensive real estate in like New York and Chicago, and they just decide to start selling the real estate. So they take this business that they got at a pretty low price, they take it public, and then all they do is they sell off the real estate and they divest that company entirely from from the Lowe's Corporation. But then this is where things get really interesting. Then then there's a business called CNA, a, a very large insurance company that has $4 billion of revenue. And CNA hits hard times. They're doing $4 billion of revenue, but they're losing like $80 million a year. And basically, they, they go into a fire sale. Larry Tish and his family offer $100 million for this business that's producing $4 billion. And they buy it. They buy this totally distressed insurance company. And they, the company owns a bunch of different things. It owns like 
It owns a large insurance business and a large reinsurance business, but it also owns like nursing homes and I don't I don't remember like massage parlors or something like that, but I don't remember the whole series of things that it owns. But basically they 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 come in, they take over, they hire an incredible leader from one of the other large insurance companies to come in and run the insurance business. And then the brothers take turns basically divesting and spinning off all of these other little parts of CNA that are no longer useful. CNA today, so so Lowe's Corporation still exists. It's a really big company. It has hundreds of businesses under it. CNA Corporation makes up something like 60% of their EBITDA. So Lowe's Corporation, I, I'm going to quote some numbers. They might be ju- directionally correct. So Lowe's Corporation, $4 billion in EBITDA last year. CNA, I think, made up like two and a half of that. And that in every company that I study is, is effectively some version of that. Like even Apple computer, where you would say, Hey, like that's a product business. They build products. They're a technology company. Well, they have hundreds of products. If you consider all their software businesses, their, their Mac OS, their different laptops, their iPhones, their headphones, et cetera, their iPhones make up 56% of that business, right? So this is a company, this is like a trillion dollar company with hundreds of products, very successful products. And they have one product that makes up over 50% of their business. So all of that is to say, all of that, like, the, I guess the, the takeaway for me really is like, the goal is to just be on the field, generating good cash flow from good investments. And if you do it long enough, your learning engine gets better. You apply that learning engine to make slightly smarter investments. And if you're at it for long enough, you're going to get lucky and you're going to have a business or two that are going to make up 60% of your holding company value. And people are going to turn and say, look at that person. He's a genius. And like, he made all these incredible investing decisions, but every investor knows that's not true. Every investor knows that the reality is you got to be slightly smarter than the rest. And then you got to be really lucky and you got to be around long enough for that luck to take hold. You mentioned being a biography geek from these companies you've studied like Apple or Transdime, CNA. What are some like habits or tactics you've taken away from some of those executives who've led those companies and try to apply for your own work? I think each story has its own learnings. That's why I consume hundreds of biographies. Like I, I listen to biographies on Audible. I'm now listening to the Founders Podcast, which is great. I'm reading biographies out like all day, every day. All I do is like study history and read biographies. And then every once in a while, I'll read a fiction book. <laughs> that's how I, that's how I diversify my my inputs. So each book has its own its own takeaways for me. And and you know the other really interesting thing, and and I'll comment on some of those. But the other interesting thing is, I can read a book a year from now, and then today the same book, and I can learn and take away something totally different. So. 10 years ago, when I was running my little education business, we were growing, growing, growing really fast. We were like doubling year over year and then tripling one year. And then at some point we hit a plateau and we started growing like 15%, 20% a year, which isn't bad. 
But in that year, I was stressed out. I was like, I need to grow faster. We're never going to be a venture-backed business. I was in this mindset of growth at all costs, right? And I read Snowball, which is an incredible biography about Warren Buffett and his, his, his story. And as I was reading that book, one thing that stood out to me was that Warren was running three or four different companies early in his career. And because he was running three or four companies, he could take money out of a company that was growing slowly and creating a lot of cash flow and inject it into investments that were growing faster. So you could have, you know, two different businesses, one growing at 10% and one growing at 50%, and you could take all of the cash flow out of the 10% business and you could inject it into the 50% growth business. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because here I am sitting on a business that's generating good profit. It's growing slowly, but I only have that one business and that one product where I can invest my money into. And I felt so silly, right? Because I know that there are better businesses out there, but I'm the CEO of this company and all I can do is just take the money out and re-inject it and grow slowly. And I, I felt very envious of the world that Warren had built for himself and this ability to take from somewhere that's low generating and inject into future investments. So that was a learning that I had eight years ago. And today, now that we own a series of businesses, I can apply that learning to the T. So for example, back to our pool construction business, it generates a lot of healthy cash flow, but it's a low growth business, right? It's in a limited market and Hopefully forever, people in Phoenix are going to be swimming in pools. It's super hot there, so I think they will be. So I think that's a very dependable, durable business over the long term that'll generate cash flow. But it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to take all of that cash flow and constantly reinvest it in that company. So instead, we take we can take money from that business and reinvest it into other opportunities. So that's a learning that I had many years ago that I took away, and it it, it just hit me right at the right time when I was feeling the pain myself as the CEO. You know, another thing that I've learned from Warren is the importance of acting with integrity and empathy and building your reputation because over your career, if you act with integrity when nobody is watching, it compounds. And it ultimately ends up creating value for you that you could have never expected. So the relationships you build along the way compound. The, the, the reputation that you create grows. And if you ever need to call on that reputation in a time of uncertainty or time of need, you have it. It's like a swimming pool that you filled drop by drop over decades of acting well with integrity. And and you see this quite a bit, like for you know for for us, like I, I've been building companies for like 15 years now, and there are incredible people that I work with today that worked with me 15 years ago, right? My my first head of operations at my first education businesses business is the COO of our technology division. He's so great, he's incredible. He 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 runs those businesses perfectly, and if I had behaved in a way that was 
that was not above board, if I had treated him in a way that was not correct, then he wouldn't be working with me today. And I would be out there scrambling, looking for another incredible person. And, and that's just you know one example, but it permeates every part of our life. Like we have so many of our shareholders that we've known for decades. You know, Xavier's built a couple of large businesses. I've built a couple of businesses. These are people that have followed us, that know us, and many that blindly invested in us when we didn't have a business, we just had an idea, right? We just went to them with a deck and said, hey, like, we're a couple of, you know, I think smart guys and there's businesses to buy out there and we're going to buy those businesses, but just give us some of your money, please, and trust that we're going to do that. You know, and you can't, you can't do that without reputation. And, and there's just so many instances of this. Let's, let's think of a couple other books that I like, a couple other biographies, because I've spent a lot of time on, on good old Warren today. I, I love the biography of John D. Rockefeller, Titan. He was like the original conglomerate, right? He entered the oil industry in the early 1900s, or I guess late 1800s. And it was just the Wild West. It was total chaos, small kind of like businesses started by wildcatters all across the country. There's no systems, there was no processes. And what he did effectively is he went around and he did a, a nationwide roll up of these small players, these small unsophisticated players. And he brought structure and consistency to this industry. Everything from digging it up from the ground, filtering and processing it, and then how he transported and then sold it, right? And he, he, he ultimately created hundreds of products. So I, I think when I look at his story, I think, of, I think of, okay, that was 100 years ago. He was kind of the original holding company builder. But there are, there are businesses today that are out there that are similar, right? They're individual kind of mom and pop players. They've built a bunch of small businesses and there's an angle to out, going out and buying these businesses and creating stability and structure in, in an industry. So yeah, so other favorite biographies of mine are, of course, Elon Musk biography, Steve Jobs biography. One of my favorites is a book called The Gambler, which is, have you read this book? No, I haven't. It's about Kirk Kirkorkian. He's also a business buyer and seller and grower, I guess. That's maybe the easiest way to call it. But he's a, he's a Greek immigrant who came to the US and over the span of a career, he bought and sold the MGM brand like four times. Might be three times, but he bought it over and over again. And it was it's this interesting takeaway for me where Basically, you only need to do one good thing in life to be very, very successful. He did, you know, he did a lot of things that led up to his wealth and his ability to kind of create, even have enough capital to buy MGM in the first place. But ultimately, if you look at his track record, I think he created like 60 or 70% of his wealth just through MGM. He bought the business when it was struggling and then he sold it and its catalog. And then somebody botched it and it was going bankrupt. And then he bought the business again and right, right of the ship. And then he sold it again. And there's just something beautiful in this because I think when people 
when people look at success and when they look at successful people, it feels so far away, right? It feels like, man, I have to like, I have to go to the right school and I have to be super smart in reading and being an accountant. Like I have to understand P&L and balance sheet. I have to be good at reading. Like I have to like have read hundreds of biographies. I have to know everything and I need to own like dozens of companies that are successful. I need to be able to like raise a bunch of money. But the reality is that's all not true. You can actually just do one thing really well. You can buy one business and it can change the finance, your, your family's financial future forever. And I didn't realize that when I was starting off because I'd, I'd always thought like, okay, you got to get lucky. You got to own all these businesses. You got to be, you got to make a, all the right decisions. But what I've learned doing what we do now is if you just buy one, you can go from zero, you know, just having very little to nothing to a lifetime of wealth and success by just making one good purchase decision, whether it's a real estate property or a business that you buy, it just takes one. And and that was one of my early takeaways from The Gambler and and one of the ones that, that I like to share. I love that one. It, it ties back to an, an earlier comment you made around lessons forged in blood are remembered forever. Have you learned anything about or what have you learned from reading and studying companies, biographies, founders, in trying to apply those lessons to your own life in a way that sticks? I think the most important thing is reading and rereading. And even now I've started writing out the lessons that I learned. You know, when we started this conversation, I list some of my personal learnings from our journey. I also have a notepad where I write down lessons that I've learned from other people's journeys. And it it's really just the act of pure repetition of hammering it into my head through reading it or listening to it and then writing it now, which really etches it into my brain. So I started a, a newsletter maybe a few months, maybe like six months ago. And I'm not naturally a person that just loves to write or spend my time creating content, but I found the act of taking a concept and projecting it out loud to others and putting it in written form to help me cement that concept in my head. And, you know, of course, Warren Buffett has a great quote about this, which is, if you are learning a new concept, the act of teaching an orangutan that concept will leave the primate confused, but will have you better understand the and remember the learnings that you're trying to take on. <laughs> something like that. So basically, like you can when you're studying something new, the act of like teaching it to somebody else is going to ingrain that in your head. And I know for years he was an associate professor at at a local college. And I think I think like part of it was this desire to take everything that he's learning, the the thousands of pages a week that he's processing and go out and actually like tell someone and synthesize it in a way that is useful to them, but also helps you remember it. So that's been an incredible act for me. You know, I've been posting more on Twitter. I've been writing this newsletter and just 
And I highly recommend it to people, to people that even don't consider themselves writers or content creators. Like even if you have two readers and one of them is your mother, it doesn't matter. Just the act of taking all those lessons in, which is synthesizing knowledge that you're absorbed, taking in and putting it out allows you to retain it and, and hopefully use it when, when, when the time comes. L like this Lowe's example, right? So for example, like this learning about the Pareto principle, I studied this Lowe's corporation a few months ago. And then I said to myself, you know, this is super interesting. I'm going to write something about it in my newsletter. And I don't normally do company profiles. I've studied hundreds of different holding companies. And today, when you ask me about a holding company, like that's the first one that comes to mind because I actually spend a little bit of time to, to write and synthesize about it. So I guess I guess that advice is is working here, even as we record. What strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? We, we covered some of this earlier, but it's this idea that fast growth will solve all your problems. So I, I come from the tech world where that is a well-known and well and strongly held belief. And they believe you believe that momentum solves everything. So culture problems, systems problems, and everything. And sometimes that's true, but my observation is that if you can, if you have a great business with a great product and great people, you can you can grow slowly and in a measured way over a long period of time, and you're going to create way more value and way more durable value, which is what I really care about than fast growth. So, speed of growth is actually something I discount now. If, if we're looking at a business that we're looking to buy and it's growing at like 50 or 70% per year, to me, that's a cause for concern because I'm wondering, is that growth sustainable? Is it growing? Is it attracting customers that are not actually durable or going to stick around and so on? So so, so that's the, the, the main thing that I think about when you ask that question. And then last one, what's the best business you've come across or studied or seen? Costco. Costco, absolutely Costco. The second part of that answer is businesses that look like Costco. So Costco has this incredible flywheel, which is they've taught us that they, they're going to offer us the lowest prices that you can find anywhere with the best quality products that they can find. And they're never going to upcharge on the margin, right? They have their buyers out there negotiating as hard as they can to get you the best quality, the best quality product at the lowest price. So if they get a super inexpensive pair of jeans that they need to sell, they're not going to mark it up 25% because either way you're going to get a good deal. They're still going to market. I think their markups like five, seven or 8% or something like that. They're always going to market up 8%. And it's that trust that they've built with you. So basically it's created a flywheel, which is they lower their prices, which brings in more customers. Then more customers show up, which allows them to apply more pressure to their manufacturers to give them even lower prices because of the volume that they're buying at. And then they can lower their prices again and then more customers come. So you have this beautiful flywheel where more customers equals lower prices, which equals more customers. And 
There's a few examples of those types of businesses out there, but few as beautiful as, as, as Costco Corporation. One of the other businesses that I've been looking at that I've been really fascinated with for years, we don't own anything here, but but I'd, I would like to own something like this one day, which is a business buying group or business buying organization. Are you familiar with these? No, I'm not. So say you're a, a doctor's office, like a dentist or something like that, right? And you need to order, you need to order those hand tools for your office. What you can do is you can order them directly and then you'll just pay the normal kind of markup price, retail markup price, or you can join a business buying group. So it can be a group of a thousand dentists that get together and they all need the same exact parts. They all need the same exact tools. And now they have formed a group where they're buying, where they're buying as that group and therefore they're pushing down prices. So they can get lower prices as a group which then brings in more dentists because it's more tra- more attractive to be part of that group, which then allows them to pressure the manufacturers more and get even cheaper prices. So any business that has like a beautiful flywheel like that is something that that has my eye. See, Eva, thank you for coming on the podcast. This was super fun to get to chat with you more. I'm glad we got to meet at Berkshire and I'm glad I got to show you a little, a little around the town and give you some recommendations for your first time coming. So hope to get to see you next year and at future conferences and gatherings too. Yeah, likewise, Alex. And and thanks for hosting today. This was fun. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts in our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com.